Well, good evening, everyone. So glad you're here for this closing night. And I agree with Pastor, the, uh, the meeting has gone by too quickly, and I hate to see it end as well. Uh, but it's been a joy to be here. And uh, Pastor, I love you too. And uh, thank you for your hospitality this week and uh, the gracious invitation to be part of your missions conference. And uh, the older I get, the more I cherish friendships. Um, you know, our relationships, uh, I think we're going to take these into eternity, aren't we? We're going to be together there, right? And so uh, I, I cherish my friendship with men like your pastor. And I, I truly believe he's a man of God. He loves you and desires to do what God has called him to do here and do it effectively and do it faithfully and diligently. And I appreciate your love for him and your support of him. Um, you love your pastor, don't you? Amen. All six of you. <clears throat> you love your pastor, don't you? All right, gets better, all right. <laughs> Did you say amen, uh, Mrs. Hatter? <laughs> Did your mom say amen? <laughs> Thank you all for your kindness, too. You always make us feel like we're part of this, part of this church. And we really do feel at home here, and we thank the Lord for the privilege to be here. Galatians 6 in your Bible. We'll begin with verse 11 in just a moment. I'll give you a second to find that. We're going to pray, and then we'll read our text. Galatians chapter 6, and you can see I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, the marks of the Lord Jesus. The marks of the Lord Jesus. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are grateful for the privilege to be involved in your mission. You have invited us, you've commissioned us, you have drafted us. However we want to look at it, we're part of your mission. And I pray that this week has stirred our hearts, that your word has stirred us enough that we will commit to a greater level of commitment and involvement. May our lives be so wrapped up in the mission of God that the rest of our life just pales in comparison to our passion for what you're doing in this world. Thank you for the giving heart and missions heart of this pastor and this church, and I pray that you'll multiply their impact around the world. We pray for your help tonight for the next few moments that your word would arrest our attention and draw our hearts closer to you and change us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 6.11 <clears throat> You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus." Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The theology of suffering is a neglected teaching in most of our churches. According to verse 17, Paul was marked as a true servant of the Lord by the marks in his body. There are two things taking place in the book of Galatians, and this will just be kind of a background for for. Uh, studying this portion of scripture, but Paul is vindicating and defending his ministry against two major problems. The first problem is those who claim that Paul was not a legitimate apostle. If you go back to chapter 1 with me, let's look at a couple of verses here. Galatians chapter 1, there were people claiming that Paul was not really a, a genuine apostle, that, that he hadn't seen the Lord, he didn't know the Lord, he wasn't called by the Lord Jesus himself. And I want you to see his, his phraseology here, starting in verse 11 of chapter 1. He said, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
When Paul says, I certify you, brethren, it would be like me saying to you, I'm telling you the truth. This is the truth right here. I'm not a fraud. I preached the true gospel to you, and it wasn't handed to me by men. It was given to me by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He gave it to me. If you look on down in the verse, uh, in, the, in the ensuing verses there, he talks about how God separated him. Verse 15, uh, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Uh, he talks about his preparation after three years of, of being in the deserts of Arabia. He went up to Jerusalem. And then uh, down here in verse 20, he says, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. This is, have you ever heard this phrase? This is the honest to God truth. That's what Paul was trying to say. I'm, I'm a genuine apostle preaching a genuine gospel given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing he's trying to do in the book of Galatians is combat a false teaching, a false doctrine. The Judaizers, they're called, sometimes had come in and began teaching a work salvation, telling the Jews, uh, or telling these Gentiles that they had to be circumcised in order to become uh, truly saved, in order to be truly saved. And you know these verses back in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 6 says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. There is no other gospel, right? And he says in verse, uh, verse 9, As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So in his defense of his own apostleship and the defense of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, Go back to chapter 6 now, and, and we see the emphatic nature of Paul's validation of his own ministry in verse 17, where he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That word I is very emphatic, and if you back up to the, to the, to the first couple of verses we read, he's contrasting I bear in my body to the ones who are accusing him of not being a legitimate apostle. So go back to verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. And then he tells why they're doing that. Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They are wanting to escape suffering and persecution by identifying more fully with Judaism. Because they know that to depart from the Judaistic system and identify wholly with Christ is not really well accepted. You know, most of the people in Jerusalem by this time had been suffering persecution, had lost their occupations, were, were exiled from their own homes in some places. In Acts chapter 8, everybody but the apostles uh, fled the city. Most everybody fled the city and preached the gospel in other places because there was persecution going on for those who fully identified with Jesus. And Paul exposes their motives for demanding that you add more works to earn your salvation, and he said, they're trying to escape persecution, lest they should suffer for the cross of Christ. Verse 13, he exposes further their motives, for neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. For them, it's about authority and image. It's about successful ministry. They're avoiding being identified with the Lord Jesus because they don't want to suffer. But I, I've suffered. And I bear in my body the marks of my suffering. Where are their marks? What do they have truly to prove and show that they are the Lord's? I want to talk about these marks that Paul is referring to tonight. And first, uh, here are my two main points, but I'll give them to you, of course, one at a time. I want to talk about the literal meaning and explanation of these marks, and then we're going to talk about the spiritual application of these marks. And we need to ask ourselves, what marks are there in our lives that prove we're following Jesus? So let's talk, first of all, about the literal explanation. What did Paul mean when he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus? Let's talk about the source of these marks, first of all. Were they literal marks? I think the case can be well proven and established that they were literal physical marks in his body. 
2 uh, Corinthians 1.5, he said this, As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, I believe they were bodily scars, physical scars and blemishes he received as a result of his persecution all throughout his ministry. Results of his boldness and his service and his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you ever use this phrase when you were, when you were a kid? You, you might be wrestling with a friend and somebody hits you on the arm really hard with their fist and you say, oh, that's going to leave a mark. You ever heard that phrase? Well, let's look at some of Paul's marks. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, but let me just point out a few words here. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Paul says, and again, you, you, you hear this same tone of defending his own ministry against those who are falsely accusing him. Are they ministers of Christ? Verse 23. I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. And we'll read more in a minute, but let's take these, these, look at the word prisons in that verse. In Acts 16 and verse 23, when they had laid many stripes upon them, it says, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. The jailer, receiving such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So the stripes laid on them, that would leave a mark. The feet fast in the stocks and the pain of, of, of being locked down and unable to move, uh, those would leave marks. And this was not the only time, obviously, that Paul was in chains or in prison. Notice in this verse he says, in stripes above measure, right there in the middle of verse 23. And in verse 24 it says, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. These were likely inflicted with a, a long leather strap stripped into, uh, cut into pieces at the end with pieces of stone or glass or bone at the end of it. And, and these, were, these were, were struck down on this, this strap, would, would be brought down on the body and yanked backwards, literally ripping open the flesh. Not clean cuts like a knife, but jagged edged tearing of the flesh. And he says there in verse 40, or verse 24 rather, five times, 39, 40 stripes say, well, that's 195 stripes across his back. You know that left a lot of marks, didn't it? Notice verse 25, thrice was I beaten with rods. Just a few years ago, I watched a video footage of Christians in Orissa, India. That's a north-central state of India. They were beaten to death by extremist Hindus with rods. Their bodies were loaded onto trucks and hauled away before the authorities could come in and see what was happening. But this punishment of being beaten with rods was inflicted on Paul and Silas at Philippi, Acts 16, like being beaten with a big walking stick or, or a big thick broom handle. Verse 25, uh, thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Uh, we, we typically think of a person being stoned as people picking up rocks and hurling it at a victim. But, but in reality, they would put the victim down below them in kind of a pit area, or they would be on the, on the top of a rise or, or a, a, not a mountain, but um, a higher, higher level, and they wouldn't throw stones at the person. They would pick up boulders as heavy as they could hold and thrust them down. Broken bones, busted ribs, Eventually, the person would succumb to the injuries and would die. And he was stoned. The body would be reduced to a broken, bloody mess. You know, you know that Paul walked around as a preacher of the gospel with evidences of those broken bones, and perhaps they weren't reset correctly. A lot of marks, aren't they? One of the phrases in this passage that grips me is at the end of verse 23. It says, in deaths oft. What does that mean? I think there was one time Paul died. I believe it was when he was stoned at Lystra, left for dead. And he speaks of it in Acts chapter 14. I'm sorry, in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, I knew a man of, in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, caught up to the third heaven. I think Paul did die, but God wasn't finished with him yet, right? But I don't read anywhere else in the scripture that Paul was actually killed and, and raised back to life. What does it mean in deaths oft? I really think it means this. 
I think it speaks of the fact that Paul frequently faced the possibility of death for his faith. I think many times in his ministry, he wanted to be bold and preach the gospel, and he knew, if I preach to these people, I know how they'll react, and they may kill me. And he looked death square in the face many, many times. Can you imagine the, not only the physical marks that would leave on you, but the mental marks, the mental stress, and, and what it would do to your psyche to, to face the possibility of death over and over and over. You know, there is often great difficulty in facing persecution. There's something very sobering about looking at the real possibility of this being the end of your life. And think about it, the possibility of this being the end of your life because you're speaking up for Jesus Christ. And Paul faced that and stood strong in the face of that all the time. May God help us that if we ever have to face that, we will stand and not capitulate. But all of this left physical and mental marks. Look at verse 26 of this portion of Scripture. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by uh, the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, weariness, painfulness, watchings, hunger, thirst, fasting, cold, nakedness. And then you put on top of all that physical suffering, he says in the next verse, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the real big burden I bear is my heart for the work of the Lord, the care of all the churches. You, you, you can't argue with the fact that Paul suffered greatly for simply proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The marks of the Lord Jesus, they were real marks, weren't they? Now let's talk about the significance of these marks. Though Paul was talking about physical marks on his body, he was using a metaphor that related to a common custom that was very well known to the people that Paul was writing this epistle to in Galatians chapter 6. The actual word in, in, in go back to Galatians 6 now, the actual word, word in verse 17, 17, where it says, I bear in my body the marks, you know what that word is? It's the word stigma in the Greek, or stigmat, stigmata. And, and it's, it means to, listen carefully, it means to mark by tattooing or branding. Primarily, it was a way to mark animals, to identify them, identify the fact that they, you were, they were owned by you. But when it was applied to the human body, it was a sign of disgrace and shame. The Lord expressly forbade these kinds of marks on a human body in Leviticus 19.28. And it was only in the days of, the, of Israel's apostasy, when they would turn from the Lord, that they would borrow the practice from heathen nations of marking their bodies. There are four possible reasons that a person's body would be marked. The first one is ownership. You can go to the next uh, slide there, brother, talking about the significance of Paul's marks. The first one would be, would be ownership, and this would be slaves. Especially runaway slaves were branded like cattle, so that if they were away from their masters, people would know who they belonged to. And you know what Paul is saying by this metaphor when he says, I bear in my body these stigma, this stigma, these marks? He was expressing very clearly, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Seventeen times in his epistles, he identified himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus. Romans 1.1, Paul a servant, that's the word slave, of Jesus Christ. Philemon 1.1, Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I guess we need to ask ourselves at this point, what is our perspective on, on us? Who owns us? Are we slaves to the Lord? We are. We are his servants. And you go, through the hist you go through the New Testament and you look up the, look up the meaning of the word servant, you'll find that most every time, if not every time, it, it is the word slave. At least it's the word bond slave or bond servant. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. It's really quite a contrast to the 
my rights, my body mentality we have these days, isn't it? The second reason a person might be marked would be for allegiance. And this would be a soldier. Soldiers were branded as a mark of allegiance to their country and their military leaders. For example, Roman soldiers, the abbreviated name of their emperor would be burned into the back of their hand. 300 years before Christ, uh, soldiers of Alexander the Great would have an A on their hand, marking them as, as soldiers and marking their allegiance to their captain and their world conqueror. And here's what Paul's saying by the metaphor. I'm a soldier of Jesus Christ. He said in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good what? A good soldier of Jesus Christ. At the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he said, I fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I finished my course. He saw himself running a race, fighting the fight of, of faith. The third reason that someone would be marked would be for religious belief. These would be idolaters. They would be branded by the priests in some, some form and in the heathen temples as a mark of their devotion and fidelity to their false gods. You can see some of these kinds of marks in, in magazines today. Anybody ever get National Geographic magazine and you would you'd see the picture of natives from dark parts of the world or, or isolated parts of the world and they have all kinds of markings on their faces and bones through their nose and all these things that would identify their devotion to their false gods. <laughs> And you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I'm not, to be fr I'm not afraid to be marked with devotion to Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid to be identified as a follower of Christ, compelled to follow him, confined to walk in the narrow way of discipleship. The fourth per uh, reason that a person would be marked in this day would be shame, and that would be criminals. Criminals were often branded with this mark of stigma. I guess the, the most prominent Bible example of this would be when Cain killed his brother Abel and the Lord put a mark on his back to identify him as a condemned person. So what is Paul saying the significance of these marks are? What, what he said here, I bear in my body the marks, everybody he's talking to knew exactly what he meant by this phrase. And Paul is saying, I choose to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm privileged to be a soldier in the army of the Lord, and he has my allegiance. I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and these marks on my body are proof of my devotion to him. And I'm happy to bear whatever stigma and shame comes with being marked as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone said, today we are interested in medals and awards and trophies. Paul was delighting in his scars. Let's talk about the spiritual application. Don't get excited because point two is a little longer than point one. The spiritual application of these marks. The literal physical description of these marks we just examined for the Apostle Paul don't really apply to most of us. I, I doubt anyone in this room has ever been beaten for your faith in Jesus. And there's probably not much danger of that happening in the near future, although it could happen at some point in our future. Are you with me on that? But just as these physical marks branded Paul, so, so there should be upon us some spiritual marks. There should be some form of declaration in our life that causes the world to know that we are followers of Jesus Christ, that he has our allegiance. He has our devotion and fidelity. And we're not ashamed to be called his own. There are three things found in verse 14 that I want to call your attention to, three marks that ought to be very visible in our life. The first one is pretty tough. Focused on the cross. Look at Galatians 6, 14. Actually, let's read the end of verse 13, where it says, where Paul said, they desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. My focus is on the cross. I glory in the cross. Now, what does this phrase mean, glory in the cross? To us, the phrase means that we rejoice in the result of the cross. Most of the songs we sing about the cross, all you think about it, they all have to do with the result of what happened there, our salvation. 
We sing about the cross. Uh, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Uh, and, and then we sing, uh, uh, Down at the cross where my Savior died, downward for cleansing from sin I cried. And every time we sing about the cross, most of the time at least, it, it shifts over to us and what we get because of what Jesus did for us. And there's, no, there's, no, uh, there's no reason we shouldn't rejoice in that, amen? Uh, he died in our place. He offers us freedom and forgiveness of sins and, and a, an eternal home in heaven. But Paul saying here, I glory in the cross, was not speaking of the result of the cross. He was glorying in the process of the cross and desiring to be identified with it. This whole text right here is about suffering. And he is rejoicing. When he says, I glory in the cross, he is glorying in being identified with the suffering of Jesus. He is rejoicing in the privilege of suffering for the one who suffered for us. In 2 Corinthians 4.10, Paul said, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Did you get that verse? Always bearing about in the body the exultant triumph and victory over sin that the cross represents. No. Bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. The suffering. Philippians 3.10 is my life's verse. That I may know him. I believe the number one pursuit of the Christian life is the knowledge of God. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. We all like that part. But the rest of it is, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul is, in that verse, Paul is saying, I, I want to know him, and I want to know the suffering he endured. I want to experience that with him. This is the theology of suffering that is, that is neglected for the most part. Brother Adam quoted a few minutes ago in his, in his uh, sharing about his ministry, I am crucified with Christ. Paul said in Galatians 2.20. Paul is glorying in the fact that if he could suffer, the fact that he could suffer for the Lord Jesus. He actually had a passionate desire to be identified with the sufferings of Christ. Could I, could I say that most of us would recoil at the thought of suffering? Most of us would run from the possibility of suffering. Most of us would refuse to say yes to any mission which might put our lives in peril and risk. Now, I'm not suggesting we ought to go out tonight looking for ways to suffer. <laughs> we ought not go out there trying to make people mad enough to beat us up for Jesus' sake. I don't want to suffer any more than you do. But the question is not, do you want to suffer? The question is, do you want to be identified with Jesus? Do you want to bear in your body the marks of glorying in the process of suffering in order to help reconcile men to God. Paul had so much that he could have gloried in, could have gloried in his education. Someone said he had the equivalency of two PhDs learning under the uh, honorable Dr. Gamaliel. He could have gloried in his aristocracy, his blue, butt, blue blood background, uh, his religion, uh, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He could have gloried in his preaching. I, I don't know. Maybe there's never been a greater preacher than the Apostle Paul. You know the most powerful testimony of, of the power of Paul's preaching was when in Acts chapter 19, uh, the apostles, uh, some, of the, some of the apostles were um, uh, um, trying to cast the demons out of somebody and it wasn't working. And here's, the, here's what the demons said to them. Uh, he said, they said, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But who are you? Yeah, they knew the power of Paul's preaching, didn't they? He could have gloried in his achievements. A great missionary, church planner. You ever think about this? Paul could go to a place and be there for three months and leave a body of believers that would form a church and come back a year or two later and strengthen that church that still existed, still going strong. He wrote half the books of the New Testament. But do you know what he gloried in? The cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submission to Jesus. Slavery to Jesus. Allegiance to Jesus. The stigma of following Jesus. It was Paul's joy. Listen to that. It was Paul's joy to die daily and take up his cross and follow Jesus. He said that in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ. Consumed him. I think I've recommended this book here before, but Nick Ripkin wrote a book called The Insanity of God. I would highly, highly recommend you read it. But Nick Ripkin was a missionary in Sudan and Kenya, Africa. In Sudan in the 1980s during the days of the Civil War when, when it was a very, very dangerous place to be. Following the death of his 14-year-old son who was, uh, was, uh, had, had a severe case of asthma which induced a heart attack and he died at the age of 14. He returned to the States and he and his wife began to seek the Lord's will about their future ministry. And he, he became burdened about persecuted Christians all over the world and he decided, I'm going to spend my life, the rest of my life, going to these nations where people are suffering for the cause of Christ and I want to encourage them and help them and strengthen them in their suffering so that the testimony of Christ will, will have great impact. And it didn't take him long as he launched out into that ministry that he said, I found out they don't need our help. We need their help. And here's what he learned from, here's one statement he made that he learned from these suffering Christians all over the world, some of whom said to him when he told them, we're going to pray that your suffering ends, they would say back to him, oh, please, no, don't do that. We're not asking for our suffering to end. We're just asking for strength in our suffering. But here's what he said, to be expendable. Here's what he learned from these suffering people. To be expendable for the kingdom of God is life's greatest joy. Boy, that runs so deeply counter to our mentality, doesn't it? We think to suffer and be beaten or be stoned for the cause of Christ would be the worst thing that ever happened to us. And Nick Ripkin said the people who are suffering in this way say this is our joy to suffer for Jesus. Are y'all with me tonight? I haven't lost you, have I? Focused on the cross. Number two, faithful to Christ. Faithful to Christ. Notice again in verse 14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this next phrase, by whom the world is crucified unto me. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying the world has left me. You know what Jesus said about this? In John 17, verse 14, he said of the apostles in his high priestly prayer, he said, I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What happens when we get saved and we begin to identify with Jesus Christ is the world doesn't want anything to do with us anymore. Isn't that, isn't that right? They, we don't have to walk away from the world sometimes. If you, if you get saved and you give yourself to Jesus and you start living for him, the people that used to love you, they don't like to be around you anymore as much. When we are saved, we are removed from the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible says it, translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So we change kingdoms when we get saved and the world walks away from us. But the problem here is what a great temptation it is to turn back to the world and to seek approval of the world. A lot of us want to be popular and well-liked. We want to be accepted in our community and we must resist the pull and the allurement of this world's approval. We sing it. The world behind me, the cross before me. I have decided to follow Jesus. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. If you've made your choice to follow Jesus, we ought to be faithful to Jesus and let the world walk away from us. I don't mean isolating ourselves from the world. You understand, you understand what I'm saying. We are still here, and we are to, to evangelize them. We're to reach out to this world. We're to minister to the people of this world and share the gospel with them. But we're not going to be liked by the people who are not following our Lord. 
I quoted it last night, John 15, 18, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I often think about those today who are suffering physically at the hands of men. Christians today all over the world that are bearing in their bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus. You know, during 2021, there were over 3,000 Christians killed just in Nigeria by the Boko Haram extreme uh, group of Islam. More than 50,000 Christians have been killed in the last decade just in Nigeria. 500 killed in Ethiopia between July and September of 2020. Every day, worldwide, eight Christians are killed for their faith. Every week, 180 church buildings are attacked or destroyed. Every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned. Many of them are physically beaten or tortured. One quarter of a billion Christians live under high to severe levels of persecution today. You search the history of the Christian faith, and you will always find us to be the outcast people of the world. Christian history is replete with suffering and persecution. Don't we sing this song? Faith of our fathers living still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. And the verse ends with, we will be true to thee till what? Death. I think that a lot of people who call themselves the people of the, Lord, of the Lord are like the young man who was talking to his sweetheart on the phone one day. And he said, I love you more than life itself. I worship the ground you walk on. I would fight wild beasts to be at your side. I would walk barefoot on hot coals just to be near you. I would wade through a swamp of crocodiles just to hold your hand. And I'm going to come over and see you tonight if it's not raining. Talk is cheap, isn't it? Commitment to Jesus, whatever the cost is needed. We ought to pray. We ought to, we ought to, we ought to seriously think about this. If I'm ever called upon to suffer harm for the Lord Jesus, I would be found focused on the cross and faithful to Jesus Christ. The third mark we ought to find in our lives is fearless for Christ. Notice the third uh, portion of Galatians 6.14. He says, By whom the world is crucified unto me, uh, they turned away from me. And then he says, And I unto the world. He, what, he, what is he saying there? They've turned away from me, and I turned away from them. I died to self, and I've died to the world. What does he mean? He means there was no allegiance, allegiance in his heart for this world. There was no desire for this world's approval. The world held no sway over his heart. He did not need the commendation, a pat on the back. He did not need the approval of this world. He didn't, he didn't just fear the Lord. He didn't, he, he didn't fear the world's uh, disapproval either. He passionately sought to defend and proclaim and preach the name of Jesus Christ. One of the verses God used to move me, this is the verse God used to move me out of the pastorate and into the work of missions. Acts 20, 22, Paul said, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things which shall befall me there. That's the verse God used to tell me. This is the leading of the Spirit in your life. You are to resign your church. You are to get involved in the work of Bible translation. And I know you don't know how it's going to go, but this is my leadership, so let's go. And you know what Paul said in the very next verse? He said, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Everybody was telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And his, he, what he's saying to them is, I'm, I'm going bound in the Spirit. You don't understand, this is a leadership of God in my life, and I'm not saying no to it. And I don't know what's going to happen when I get there. Next verse, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city that bonds and affliction abide me. That means everywhere I go, there they, there they are. Bonds and affliction, they're my two companions in every city I go to but I'm going anyway. Paul knew it was coming. He knew suffering was coming, and he did not shrink back from it. What should our attitude be about this? Jesus said to the suffering church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Don't be afraid of that. In medieval times, when, when knights were bold and kings would go to war, 
They would lead their armies into the battle, and the king would find himself in the center of the battle in the hottest part of the fight. The arrows would be flying, and the swords would be swinging, and the knights who were uh, wanted to be brave would, would get as close to the king as possible to show how much they were loyal to him and how much allegiance they had for their king. When the victory was won, and they would return to the castle for a sumptuous feast, the talk would turn to the battle, and the king would show his battle wounds. I got a cut here on my arm, went all the way to the bone. Look at that. Oh, right here on my leg, I took an arrow, pulled it out myself. The king would show his battle wounds. The knights who were close to him, when he was finished, would show their wounds. And they showed them proudly. Proof that they had stood by the king and fought with the king. Now you might think that those who were not wounded would be glad. I didn't get cut. I didn't get shot with an arrow. I'm thankful I didn't get all that. But these knights were not proud of that fact. They were ashamed of that fact. Those who had no scars did not count themselves lucky, but hung their heads in shame and humiliation. Were they not brave enough, they asked themselves. Were they not close enough to the king, they asked themselves. Look at the words of this missionary, Amy Carmichael, who said, No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? Captain, beloved, battle wounds were thine. Let me not wonder if some hurt be mine. Rather, O Lord, let my deep wonder be that I may share a battle wound with thee. Missionary Amy Carmichael. You know this song. Am I a soldier of the cross? Look at the words on the screen. And shall I fear to own? Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? The obvious answer is no, it isn't. Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. The anthems of believers marching forth for Jesus Christ, that's what those are. I think we just need to realize we're not going to be loved by this world. And what we believe and preach and teach is not going to be popular. We cannot... Be fearless for Christ if we are fearful of men. And I wonder sometimes if half the world is still unreached with the gospel because we're trying to advance comfortable Christianity, acceptable Christianity, guilt-free Christianity, non-offensive Christianity. We fear being disliked. We fear discomfort. And I wonder if the cause of Christ is suffering because of a lack of fo focused on the cross, faithful, fearless soldiers of Jesus Christ. I want to introduce you to a family. You may or may not know this particular family. It's the Stephen Trell family. Anybody here know this, who this is? Following 9-11, remember what happened on 9-11 when the planes flew into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon and the plane crashed in Pennsylvania. Stephen went to the military recruiting office to sign up to go to, to go to join the military. The officer asked him after a bit of conversation, the officer asked him, why do you want to join the military? And his answer was, I want to go kill some Muslims. The recruiting officer reached around behind his desk and picked up a Bible and laid it on the front of the desk. And he looked at my friend Stephen. He said, no, you're not going to the military. God has a different plan for your life. You need to go home and pray and find out what it is. We had the opportunity to spend some time with this family a few days ago. They, uh, Stephen went on a missions trip not long after that. Went to Iraq, Jordan, 
and maybe a couple other locations in the Middle East. And on his way back, he began to think about his desire to kill Muslims and that that ran contrary to the scripture and the gospel. And God began to break down his heart over that. Eventually, he surrendered to be a missionary to the Middle East. And he went to Jordan and he spent six years there. The whole time he was in Jordan, he was looking for a way to get into Baghdad, Iraq. He wanted with all of his soul to go to Baghdad, Iraq and reach people for Jesus Christ. They made it. They finally made it. They found a way to get in. They got visas. In December of 2020, they landed in Baghdad, Iraq. They found a home. They moved in. They were getting settled. And the U.S. government uh, uh, did the drone strike that took out Soleimani, the Iranian general, there in Baghdad. And all Americans were immediately told to evacuate. So only after three weeks in the country, after all the thousands and thousands of dollars and the endless prayers and the endless pursuit of getting to the place where he wanted to serve God, he had to leave. He determined that they would return as soon as possible. And about seven or eight months later, they were able to get back in. And he spent about a year and a half to two years in Baghdad, Iraq. On November the 7th of last year, he pulled onto the street where he lived. And as soon as he pulled onto his street, a car pulled forward that was parked on the side of the road here and blocked his path. And another vehicle pulled up behind him and some men got out and assassinated him. His body was riddled with bullets. His wife was in the car with him, but she wasn't harmed at all. Thankfully, his children were not. His little boy just turned three last week. If you knew Stephen, you loved him. And if he knew you, you were his best friend. Never met anybody more passionate for the cause of Christ. He knew the risk they were taking. He spoke of it many times. They went all over the United States to various training centers that prepare you to live in dangerous parts of the world, and they took some very, very intense training because they knew the possibilities that they might face. But his constant refrain was, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. His funeral was three weeks to the day after he died. It took a lot of paperwork and, and red tape to get his body back to the States. The government was involved. His funeral was Monday after Thanksgiving. Very stirring funeral service. Christ was exalted. But Stephen had created his own funeral program. And I have a printed copy of it. And he told his closest friend, I think, Scott Pauley, read this at my funeral and it was printed on the back of the funeral program and the title of it is when I die in the Middle East and he said I will die and then he listed a bunch of things that he would die with or die knowing so let me just give you a few of them this is not all of them he said I will die having experienced the transformation God's love can do and make in a heart and a life I will die with the love of God in my heart for the Arabic-speaking people. I will die knowing I have obediently followed the direction of God for me and my family. I will die seeing that as we have stepped out in faith into the unknown, God has met us and proven himself to us in many mighty ways. I will die having the time of my life walking alongside my wife and children. I will die with a vision of the possible. Millions of Arabic-speaking people in the Middle East following Jesus and reproducing themselves in the lives of others. I will die with a thousand unfulfilled dreams of reaching the Middle East. I will die understanding that unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. I will die with a broken heart, both over the lack of compassion of God's people toward the Middle East and over the inaction of God's people to obediently advance the gospel in lands under the shadow of the crescent. I will die knowing that so much more could have been done. Great opportunities have been squandered in the name of safety and wisdom. 
I will die knowing I could have personally done more. I could have given more. I could have risked more. I will die knowing I have cast my lot in the greatest cause for which one can spend and be spent. Making known the great name of God among peoples who have yet to hear the good news of the gospel. In the last words of his, this, this that he wrote were, May the land that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. See, why are you sharing all this with us? I think it's an inspiring story, isn't it? And here's why I'm doing it. Because by the word of God and the text we study tonight, we can know that our sovereign, self-sufficient, worthy God used this man in the advancement of his mission. To us is an extreme tragedy that this man left earth at 46 years of age and left a wife and three beautiful daughters and a young son. God is sovereign, isn't he? I said this Sunday. He's sovereign everywhere, and he's sovereign right now. You know what's easy for us? It's easy for us to look back and see the sovereignty of God in the creation of this world, in the choosing of Israel, and the, the kings of Israel, and walking all the way through the sending of Jesus Christ. We can see his sovereignty. We can see his sovereignty in our lives, bringing us to the place of salvation. A pastor who won us to Christ, or parents who nurtured us in the faith and, and led us to Jesus. We see the sovereignty of God in the past. And it's easy for us to see the sovereignty of God in the future, because I believe someday he's going to return to this earth, and he's going to make all things right. He's going to reconcile all the wrongs in this world. He's going to right all of them, isn't he? And he's going to reign over this world in power, absolute power and authority, and every knee will bow to him. It's easy for us to see his sovereignty in the past and his sovereignty in the future. You know what the hard part for us is? Accepting his sovereignty right now in what's going on in this world. We may not understand this, and this may sound to you like a very cold statement, but someday we're going to believe that it was a privilege for this man to give his life for Jesus. He already believes it. We have such limited perspective, and that's hard for us to comprehend. But you know what needs to be true of us? Focused on the cross. Faithful to Jesus. And fearless for Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, I believe for every one of us in this room tonight, there are people out there looking for the marks of the Lord Jesus in our lives. We may not think anybody's watching, but people are watching. There's somebody in this community that needs to see our lives and our following of Jesus so that they'll be impacted for the sake of the gospel. Lord, would you use this message to deeply affect us and our faithfulness and our fearlessness for you. In Jesus' name.